Did you know that in the book of Acts, there are actually three different times that we get to hear the road to Damascus experience that Paul experienced? First, of course, there's Acts 9. That's the actual narrative itself. But then twice we get to hear Paul tell it himself. In chapter 22, and that's on the steps of the Roman barracks in Jerusalem, and it's to a crowd of people who were just trying to murder him. And then in chapter 26, now Paul's in Caesarea, it's about two years later, and he's speaking it to King Agrippa, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And I've long been interested, I would even say fascinated, by the differences in the three accounts. In fact, I'll try and kind of speedily walk you through them. I'll read you Acts 9. But on his journey, as he neared Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly blazed around him, and he fell to the ground. Then he heard a voice speaking to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? he asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, was the reply. But now stand up and go into the city, and there you will be told what you must do. And for the sake of you not having to listen to me read too much today, I'll kind of tell you that in Acts 22, when he's speaking it in Jerusalem, he's pretty much on track with what you just heard from Acts 9. But then comes the difference. He says, and the Lord told me, get up and go to Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been determined for you to do. He has Jesus speaking to him slightly different words, which takes me to Acts 26 again in Caesarea speaking to King Agrippa. This time, there's quite a bit more. I'm going to read it all to you. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is not for you to kick against your own conscience. Who are you, Lord? I said. And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet and listen to this difference. For I have shown myself to you for a reason. You are chosen to be my servant and a witness to what you have seen of me today and of other visions of myself, which I will give you. I will keep you safe from both your own people and from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. I send you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God himself, so that they may know forgiveness of their sins and take their place with all those who are made holy by their faith in me. And so you might be asking yourself, why this particular preamble today? Well, because it's that faith, that faith in Jesus, the faith that makes its bearer holy, that this whole next chapter, Romans 10, is about. In fact, I want you to listen to Paul's own preamble to that chapter, chapter 10. It's like an autobiography of the before and after of the road to Damascus. So just listen. My brothers... From the bottom of my heart, I long and pray to God that Israel may be saved. I know from experience what a passion for God they have, but alas, it is not a passion based on knowledge. They do not know God's righteousness, and all the time they are going about trying to prove their own righteousness, they have the wrong attitude to receive His. For Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness by the law for everyone who believes in him. Moses writes of righteousness by the law when he says that the man who perfectly obeys the law shall find life in it, which is theoretically right, but impossible in practice. Do you see what I mean as you listen? 
that this reads almost like an autobiography? Because when Saul of Tarsus set out on the morning of that famous noonday, he certainly had a passion for God, but alas, not a passion based on knowledge. He was actively trying to prove his own righteousness, but did not know God's righteousness and clearly had the wrong attitude to receive it. His whole life had been the struggle for righteousness by the law, where he, yes, hoped to find life by perfect obedience, but yet which was theoretically right, but impossible in practice. So what changed? What were the outward fruits of his before and after? Well, from the bottom of his heart, he hoped now that all may be saved. He now knew God's righteousness. He only wanted to receive it all the more. Knowing Christ, he'd reached the end of that struggle for righteousness by the law because simply he believed in Jesus. In fact, before we go on, this actually is, I'm realizing now, becoming more instructive than I think I realized when I started getting going. I mean, think about Paul on that day. He's really a picture of humanity's whole journey with reference to Jesus. Like before walking along the road on his own, during having been confronted by him, in fact, having been blinded by it, and then after, afterward, where he was then really the exact human being he was originally meant to be. In fact, sorry to belabor this, but let's go back for just a second and look at those words, these words, with reference to those three stages. Think about it this way. Before you had confused passion, having experienced him even a little bit, you were sort of dazed and confused. Afterward, there's a directed passion toward Jesus and toward others. Beforehand, you didn't know God's righteousness. Having seen a little of him, you were stunned, even blinded by his righteousness. And then after, you're desirous only to receive more of it, but where? On the inside. Before, you were struggling for your own form of righteousness, weren't you? Having experienced him, you started to realize only he is righteous. And afterward, and this is kind of back to chapter 9, you're done achieving righteousness. Instead, now you're going to believe to receive it. And then lastly, before Jesus, self-perfection was the way. Having sort of tasted a little of him, it appears, whoa, is, is he the way? And friends, where we are now, where we want to be is afterward, we're now walking along the way with him, the one who is the way. So I, I guess you can guess where I'm going with this. Where are you as you're listening to my voice right now? I mean, are you still on the beforehand side, kind of with a confused passion in life, don't really know God's righteousness, struggling for your own form of righteousness, trying to perfect yourself? Are you sort of scratching the surface of what he's about? Are you sort of still dazed and confused, stunned uh, by his righteousness, realizing maybe he's the only one who's righteous and starting to realize that he is the way to live? Or are you on the after side? I mean, is your passion directed just toward him and toward others? Are you desirous to receive more of his righteousness on the inside? Are you done achieving your righteousness? Are you simply believing, surrendering to receive his and now? Are you walking along that way with him? 
I think you can guess what I'm dreaming of seeing in my life, in your life. I mean, I think that's what Paul is dreaming. And of course, Jesus himself. Which I would say, in probably the longest preamble I've ever done, is really the reason that this whole section, this whole chapter, is so terribly important. It's really the whole story of the way to walk in the afterward phase of Jesus. So let's let me stop belaboring it and let's get going. We read on and we'll be in verse 6 here. But righteousness by faith says something like this. You need not say in your heart, who could go up to heaven to bring Christ down to us? Or who could descend into the depths to bring him up from the dead? In essence, you need not say in your heart anymore, what is the externalized religious way to find God? That's almost Paul's wording here. For the secret is very near you, in your own heart, in your own mouth. It is the secret of faith, which is the burden of our preaching. And it says, in effect, if you openly admit by your own mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord, and if you believe in your own heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is believing in the heart that makes a man righteous before God, and it is stating his belief by his own mouth that confirms his salvation. And the scripture says, whosoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. Mm. Shall not be disappointed. You know, the word here for faith is the classic word. It's pisteos in Greek. And I want you to hear what it is, what it, what it means to really believe in Jesus. It is to trust in Jesus to have faith in Jesus, to place belief in Jesus, to be persuaded regarding Jesus, to have confidence in Jesus, to place assurance in Jesus, to find good faith in the person of Jesus, to experience trustworthiness and faithfulness and honesty in his character, to extend him credit and receive his to find in him that which gives confidence, to view him as your assurance, your pledge of good faith, your guarantee, to, to make a treaty with God, utilizing Jesus as your exchanged surety. How good is that? To let Jesus be the means of persuasion, the argument, the proof for the nature of the Godhead. Friends, it is once for your whole life to realize that he's everything the King of kings and Lord of lords, and to say yes to the work of his life, death, and resurrection within you. And it is also the joyous daily way he invites us to believe all over again. I mean, to be his, to believe today. My friend, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that he is alive right now? Well, then, my goodness, you are saved. You are free. And you shall not be now or ever, ever disappointed. For you know the one in whom you have placed your confidence. It is Jesus, that carpenter teacher from Nazareth in Galilee. <laughs> As I always say, it's that wonderful bearded man. And you know what? Actually, let's stop and talk to him about it. Because maybe you're listening to me right now and you're thinking, have I ever really done that? 
let's all of us. I mean, whether this is your first time ever or your 10th time today, let's reaffirm our belief that he's everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are Lord. Thank you that you are everything, that you are God in the flesh. Thank you that you came for me. Thank you that you died to set me free. Thank you that you came out of that tomb to save me from death. I give myself to you today. I only want to know you. I want to follow you. I want you to live inside me. So come again, Jesus. Come live in me. Come live in my friends. May we experience today the fullness of your salvation so that we're just electric with it. Oh, Jesus, thank you for being so good to us. Come and live in us more richly. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Oh, boy, I feel all carried away. Well, let's keep reading a little bit here. We're down in verse 12 now. And that whosoever, Paul writes, means anyone without distinction between Jew or Greek. For all have the same Lord, whose boundless resources are available to all who turn to him in faith. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you know what? Maybe that just happened for some of you. Maybe you listening to me pray, prayed with me, and it just happened. Glory, glory. I mean, that's getting carried away. Let's keep going. Now, how can they call on one in whom they have never believed? How can they believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how can they hear unless someone proclaims him? And who will go to tell them unless he is sent? As the scripture puts it, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings of good things. Now, if you're into this kind of thing, which I sort of am, What Paul just gave us there, if you were paying attention, is what I would call a descending deductive chain argument, where uh, true premises are linking to each other, and that's going toward a conclusion. And I call it a descending deductive chain argument because it starts at the whole and descends to the level of the individual. Listen to how that would read if we went the other way, if we sort of ascended back up through the order. Listen. Unless someone is sent, then they will not go, and nothing will be proclaimed. No one will hear, and none will believe or ever call on Jesus. But let's flip that into the positive, shall we? If one is sent and goes and proclaims, then others will hear and believe and call on Jesus. So let's get down to brass tacks. Who are the ones whose beautiful feet are meant to bear the glad tidings of good things, i.e., who has already been sent. And I'll give you a really good hint here. They were looking at you in the mirror just this morning while you brushed your teeth. You see, you are a sent one. You're an apostle, and it's your beautiful feet that are called to carry forth the gospel. If you go... In the spirit and way of Jesus, your proclamation will be the actual way that others hear. And if they hear and 
when they get to see it be true in your life, well, there's a wonderful chance that they might believe. That they'll say yes, and maybe for the first time, call on his name. My friends, let's go. Let's proclaim. Let's let him do his thing in us and every day all the more through us. Well, then I'll tell you, Paul now kind of veers back toward Israel. So he's slightly switching gears, but we're going to switch gears and then we'll come back. So just follow with me. Verse 16, yet all who have heard have not responded to the gospel. Isaiah asks, you remember, Lord, who hath believed our report? Belief, you see, can only come from hearing the message and the message is the word of Christ. And before we go any further, I want to talk about that because that is important for all of this. And also that is one of the few times when a a vague difference in the way that Greek is understood and translated can actually have a big impact on how we live and think about just all of this. The exact literal translation of verse 17 would run like this. So faith from hearing and hearing through the word Christ. And if you look at the version of the translation of your Bible, maybe it's spread out in front of you right now, that last clause will either read this way, the word about Christ, the word concerning Christ, or as the Phillips just said, the word of Christ. But here's a fun oddity of Greek. Oftentimes, two words like word and Christ will be put together without any preposition like of or about. So it's really up to the translator or the reader to decide the best form of linkage between those two words. So what do I want to do? I want to get a little bold here. I want to offer you a different translation. I want you to pay attention to the difference. So faith from hearing and hearing through the word, Christ. You see, Jesus himself is both the logos, the word, and the chrema, the that which is said, really the heart of the matter. And he's the heart of the matter for himself. Faith comes from hearing. And what we want to show others is that they can actually hear from the word, the subject himself. First-handedness is the true heart of belief. And that's what we're trying to learn to model. All right, let's get back to the Israelites. Jumping into verse 18. But when I ask myself, did they never hear? I have to answer that they have heard. For their sound went out into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Then I say to myself, did Israel not know? And my answer must be that they did. For Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy with that which is no nation. With a nation void of understanding, will I anger you? And Isaiah, more daring still, puts these words into the mouth mouth of God. I was found of them that sought me not. I became manifest unto them that asked not of me. And then speaking of Israel, all the day long did I spread out my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. That's a word you don't hear too often, gainsaying. It's kind of just fun to say it out loud, to gainsay. But you know what? It's not a fun way to live. So as we kind of look ahead, I'm looking right here at chapter 11, kind of spread out in front of me. And actually, we're going to be spending two weeks in chapter 11. 
I just want to end this chapter by making sure that you hear me saying this very clearly, and I'll be sort of paraphrasing my way through that ending of chapter 10, so listen in. Friends, we have heard the sound of the call, the call of his voice. It has gone unto the ends of the world by the power of his spirit. And you and I are not a nation, like the Israelites used to be a nation in this way. No, we are the family of God for the purposes of heavenly, I'll call it provocation. He sought us when we didn't even know where to seek. He became manifest to draw us into his presence. And now we are the spreading out of his hands unto those disobedient and gainsaying people everywhere. He, the word, is speaking his words and his life through us. So let's go enjoy, I mean, let's just get carried away with the, the glory of this adventure we're on. I'm so pleased to be on that journey with you and with him. Well, let's go live it. Thanks for listening, my friends. Have a wonderful rest of your day.